But before we do, I want to go back and point out and talk about the reality of spiritual warfare. That that is what this passage is arguing for. And I want to point us back, as I mentioned last week, the basic logic of the passage. So if you're looking there in Ephesians 6, look in verses 11 through 13. And I just want you to see the basic logic of what the passage is arguing and then why we need the whole armor of God. You'll see there, picking up at verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, and against authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the first basic premise this works from, that Paul argues, is that the war we are in is a spiritual, not a physical war, right? It's not a war of primarily flesh and blood, and literally it says a blood and flesh there, uh, but it, flesh and blood, but rather it is a, is a wrestling against something else. It is, an, is a wrestling against rulers, against authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So it starts with a basic premise that the war we are in is a spiritual not a physical war. Thus, the second idea is that the way we wage war is, and we can say has to be, spiritual. You'll you'll see that in the second part of verse 12, that it is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And going to 13, therefore, we have to take up the whole armor of God. We are waging this war against a spiritual foe, and therefore, it, we, are, we have to take up, that's the last step in the logic, the whole armor of God. That is, therefore, we need armament and weapons designed for this spiritual war if we are to stand victorious. If you use the wrong weapons in a war, you will lose. That's how it works. And so Paul is arguing we must understand that the war we are truly in as Christians is not physical in nature, it is actually spiritual. That at the root of what we are warring against is spiritual forces. Now, the overarching goal of that, as I've argued in weeks past, is our goal, overarching goal is to stand firm in the gospel to the end. You'll notice that in verses 11, 13, and 14. That word stand, histemi. It says there in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God, why? That you may be able to stand, very specifically stand against the schemes of the devil. But he goes on after he says in verse 12, who we wrestle against, he picking up in 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand, that's antihistamine. Now that's not antihistamines, that's not so you don't sneeze. You don't have a chance against the, the uh, cedar, don't even try. No, uh, but it is antihistamine to withstand, to stand against in the evil day, and then notice the end, and having done all, to stand firm. That's the word again, stand firm. And then notice verse 14. It is the command, the imperative, stand therefore. So the, the fundamental overarching goal is to stand firm in the gospel to the end. And I think we will see that more today as we look at particularly the shoes we are to wear, and what that means. Now, something I want to point out that I've not brought out in the weeks past particularly, and that is the very nature of the spiritual warfare. The nature of the warfare itself, and there are two key words here, and that is the word stand and the word wrestle. The word stand and the word wrestle. Now, look back in verses 10 through 13. In verse 10 again, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against the schemes of the devil. Okay. Here's the point. It's like you're standing at a battle line. And you're going to have to stand against. Why? The war we are in is brought to us. It is is unavoidable. 
You can't opt out of this war. It will be brought to us. That's what Paul is saying. You're going to have to stand against the schemes of the devil. Whether you like it or not, whether you choose to or not, that war is coming to bear and is already in action against us. And so we have to understand the nature of this war is you don't get to choose if you're in the fight or not. When I was in middle school, it became popular to challenge other boys to a fight. Now, if you've ever seen a middle school fight, one is it happens at the bike racks. Now, I don't know if they have those nowadays, but back in my day, you had to go to the bike racks. Anybody had to go to the bike racks? You remember this? Yeah, I had to go to the bike racks, right? And then what you would do is you would then talk, and then you would chest up, and you would dance around in circles praying, dear Lord, let this not actually happen, amen, right? That's how it worked. It was very entertaining to watch, because half the entertainment was, what are they going to say, and then who's going to run away first, right? Because usually what happened is the big guy shows up, and the small guy goes, this is not my odds, and he finds a way out. You can't do that, because if you show up at the bike racks of spiritual warfare and you try to run away, Satan will chase you down. He will bring the fight to you. Which gets to the second point. Notice the word wrestle. We are to what in verse 12? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but, and it's an implied verb there, we wrestle against the rulers against authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That word wrestle is where we get the whole practice of Greco-Roman wrestling. It was popular in the days of Paul. The Isthmus Games, the, the Olympic Games, Greco-Roman wrestling. This isn't WWE. It's not made up, Okay. They weren't jumping off the top rope and slamming each other with a chair and breaking tables and getting paid millions. This was to show the strength and skill of the wrestlers involved. And if you know Greco-Roman wrestling, it is very, very intimate. When you're wrestling another, one, another person on that mat, you swap sweat. And if your mouth hangs open... Yeah, you can, it's very, very personal, right? I mean, you, you, you get down on all fours, someone grabs your wrist, you're trying to flip over, you're trying to make moves. It, you are entangled with each other. That's the word Paul uses here when he says, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, you are wrestling against spiritual forces. And here's the point. It is a war fought in close quarters. Not only can you not run away from this war, but you cannot fight it at a distance. This is not like our modern warfare. Still remember, when uh, drones first started coming out, uh, and they were being used in war, and particularly in Iraq, they were giving reports of Iraqi soldiers surrendering to drones. They just come out and start waving a flag, and you know, this, this guy or gal flying this drone, probably sitting you know, somewhere here in the States, Maybe in theater, but they could even be this far back, and, and, and we know this. I mean, that's how good the technology is. You don't get to fight the war against Satan that way. It is not a video game war. He's going to be up in your business, as it were. It is personal and close quarters. It's unavoidable, and if you think he will leave you alone, then he is one round one. You are fooled. This is particularly true of us Christians, but I will tell you, even those who do not know Christ, if you have never embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're thinking, well, I just won't get into that war, you're in it. You just have to be on the losing side. Satan will do whatever he needs to ensure your demise. He is known as a destroyer, right? Right? Scripture actually says he seeks to devour people like a lion. So the point being is, this war that is a spiritual war 
is true and real, and there is no human that escapes it. Whether or not you know Christ or not, it is a war that is personal in nature, close quarters, and you will have to battle. You will feel it. It is unavoidable. And for many of us, you know the depths that this war can go to and how it can, how it can just tear at the very core of your soul. No wonder our God says you need to wear the whole armor because you are in close quarter battles with one who is greater than you. Do not be fooled. You alone versus Satan, you will lose. Primary example number one, what happened in the Garden of Eden? We lost. Satan won the day. We chose to enter into sin. We believed the deception that he presented. And if you think you are beyond being defeated by Satan, then you are fooled. And Paul is telling us, understand the nature of the war. It is personal and it will be brought to you. It is unavoidable. Now, this gets us into these weapons of warfare, of the spiritual warfare. And, it asks, and I ask the question, why these weapons, right? Now, think about this. When I read this passage, and I go back, and I've read this passage for years, and I'm, I'm looking this passage in the face, and there's, there's something missing. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Where? Not in here. I was like, where's that at? Hope's not mentioned directly either. Grace isn't mentioned overtly here. And I started wondering, like, why these weapons? Why does he speak of it this way? Well, I think it gets back to what we saw last week when I pointed out Paul is drawing out of the book of Isaiah of how God, and particularly the Messiah, armors himself for warfare. Notice the six instruments, right? It's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. They are shoes that are the gospel of peace. It is the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. But these map to what we see in the book of Isaiah. And it's interesting because verse 10 of Ephesians 6 points us that way. How does Paul start this passage? Verse 10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We even sang it earlier. Not I, but Christ in me. Right? I mean, I, I try to fight this on my own power and strength. I will lose. We know this. And what, what Paul is pointing us to is you need to be in the strength of God himself. So pay attention basically to what Paul says. This is how God armors himself for his battles. And going back to Isaiah, when you look at Isaiah, what you see is this whole example of how God arrays himself. The belt of truth in Isaiah 11.5 again, it says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness or truth the belt of his loins we're gonna get back to that whole idea of what this belt does righteousness isaiah 59 17 he the messiah put on righteousness as a breast breast i had a problem with this word last week i practiced utter failure we'll try again i'm gonna keep preaching until i get that word right no no we're gonna have to leave the passage before then he put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Or Isaiah eleven five, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Now you'll notice, by the way, and, and you, you would see this, that at times the, the, the righteousness, these armaments aren't always used to represent the exact same piece of equipment that, that the word gets moved around. But we're going to see there's a holistic thing that's going on here that we need to see going on third is the gospel the shoes of the gospel of peace isaiah 52 7 how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings gospel who brings good news 
who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, what's the gospel? What's the good news, Israel? Your God reigns. That's the gospel. At the the heart of the gospel is the sovereignty of God. Your God reigns. He is sovereign. No other God does. The fourth is the shield of faith. Isaiah 11.5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You know, I I pointed back, I mean, Genesis 15.1, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. God himself, our shield, and we'll, we'll look at that more. The salvation is the helmet of salvation, Isaiah 59, 17, which we've already read. A helmet of salvation on his head. Here's the Messiah. This is how he reigns. He, he, he armors himself. This is what he does. Are you a follower of the Messiah? Do you follow Christ? Arm yourself the way he does. And the sixth, the word of God. Sword of the Spirit is the word of God, Isaiah 11, 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, which we see reflected also in Revelation 19, 15, in the second coming of our Lord. Here's the point and the key point for today. Putting on the whole armor of God is to embrace God, His work, and His word with all that we are. Paul is using a metaphor, and we're going to look at this, and I want us to see that putting on the whole armor of God, what it means is is to embrace God, and particularly in the person of Christ, but to embrace God, His work, and His word with all that we are. It is a holistic, all-encompassing armament. That's what the armor of God is about, because you are in close-quarter combats with an enemy who can destroy you. He can strike death blows without it. And so, you need to be armored fully. Now, what you're going to see is that to be armored with the whole armor of God is to be armored with God himself. Just just listen to how these, these words work as we go through this. Picking up in Ephesians 6.14, it says, Stand therefore, and then it has these these participles, as they're called. They're the the I-N-G words here. Having fastened is where it starts. Having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, in some translations, this says, gird your loins. That's just a, it just sounds manly, doesn't it? Until you realize that gird comes from girdle, and then you're like, maybe not so much, right? Gird your loins, right? Now, here's the deal. In, in, in Roman armor, what you would do is you fasten this belt around you. Now, I wear a thin belt to hold up the pants around the fatter waist, but this doesn't represent a belt of truth. This, the better way that it might help you, how many of you have ever had back problems? You ever had to get one of those back braces that you put around, and what it does is it supports your back, and it it straightens you up? That's what this this belt of truth was to do. This belt in the armor was it strengthening the core. See, the, the idea here is that truth has to strengthen the very core of who you are. It is what keeps you in the fight. If you've ever, ever had to do a lot of work, and you're lifting over and over slowly do you start doing this and by the end of the day you're like i don't get anything higher than this right that's just you know you're doing this because your back wears out or why do you have back problems because you don't have abs of steel right because if you don't have stomach muscles to help support and so the 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 thing is here there's this this visual picture that paul's trying to get at that and, and you can overextend the metaphor but really what it's getting to is The core of who we are has to be based in truth. Now, I saw this. You you ever seen what, you know, with something needs to to help support back braces? Another example I saw this, we were at the Toyota plant that's out here on the south side, and they were having to lift very heavy pieces of metal assembling a car. 
It was really interesting. I look over, and the guy's wearing an exoskeleton. It's literally a brace on their arms that gave them extra strength to be able to lift this piece of metal so it didn't like cause long-term injury. Because of their own strength, they wouldn't be able to do it. That actually gets to where Paul is going with this. You see, the belt of truth is not only our, our commitment to truth. It's not just saying, I want to know the truth. It is a commitment to embrace that truth and trust in it fully. It's, it's saying that I'm going to bet my life on it. I am willing to redirect my life because of it. That at the core of the battle armament is the fact that we trust wholly in what God has said. And so that brings a, a stiffness to us, a, an uprightness in the sense of now we can be in the battle and not cower backwards. Not think, well, I don't have the strength. And this is why I think even last week as we referenced, it is not us that generates the strength. It is the grace of God within us. You see, putting on the whole armor of God is not about, hey, I've got to generate enough strength so I can do this. It's literally God working in his truth in our lives so that we fully embrace it as true. And we say that is going to strengthen us for the battle at hand. Because there are moments that are going to come when it doesn't sound believable. Is God really good? Did God really say you couldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You know why? It's because God doesn't want you to be like him. Can you really trust this God and all the suffering you're going through? Will he really deliver you? Will he help you overcome that sin problem? What, can that actually be delivered? Can, really? Because you've been fighting it for years. What, what's going on? And see, over time, Satan, who is both the accuser, to quote Revelation, and the deceiver, that disinformation comes. And if you are not embracing the truth of God, you can't just know it. Your life has to be given to it. And say, I'm betting my life on the fact this is true. This is reality. That, that is what strengthens us to be in the fight. It's not from our own strength. It is from the work of God within us. And we are saying we believe God. That what he says is true. It's not theoretical. It's not just to pontificate on and have debates about it's literally saying, I will direct my life over to the way that God says it's to be led. Because this is what is true. It's the belt of truth. It gets to the very core of who we are. The second thing he says is the breast, breastplate of righteousness. Some of you are starting to pray that I'll say that word right one day. I, I can hear it already. What are we supposed to do? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's what we're supposed to do, is to put it on. Now, in, in the Roman world, what you would do, what it was made out of, they would create strips of iron or bronze. And that's so that it was a pliable material. Now, nowadays, we have nice Kevlar vests, right? They can do amazing things. Like I didn't, It's amazing what you can do with fabric now and what it's made out of. But back then, they had to have iron strips or bronze strips, and that's so that it was pliable. And it would be put into leather, and that's so you could pull it around the back and tighten it up. But then it's on you so that now I can move. But if I take a blow, I had a chance that that sword that was coming or the piercing thrust would not pierce the armor. It gave me a chance so that those blows would be deflected and not have a penetrating uh, a attack against me. Here's, here's the thing about, notice it is a breastplate of righteousness whose righteousness you see if it's your righteousness then isaiah is very clear about your righteousness isaiah 64 6 all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags 
polluted garments. It's actually what you discard after that time of month for a woman. That's how vivid it is. It is a vivid picture that your righteousness, if that is your armor, it gives you no defense. It is like a, a flimsy rag. You see, what, what's getting at here is the righteousness that is given to us at salvation. Galatians 3.27, For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The righteousness we are talking about here is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Imputed. We would use the word credited today. It is a righteousness credited to you. It is not your righteousness. To use the word that's used of old, it is an alien righteousness. It does not belong to you. It is not your righteousness. If you think, I can live a holy enough life that Satan will then now flee from me, it will be deflected, you're wrong. What you must do is be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, to put it on. That is, you stand and say, no matter the accusations, no matter how deep my sin is, not just the sin of the past, there are some that we still struggle deeply with, besetting sins that will not leave us. And we can get, begin to believe the sin will never be overcome. And the answer is, but it has been through the righteousness of Christ. You see, putting on the armor of God you're putting on his truth, and you are putting on his righteousness, not yours. This is what gives us the ability to stand in the battle. A breastplate of righteousness. So when the accusations come, I say, not me, but my Lord is the one who stands righteous. And I stand righteous because I am in Christ. It is his righteousness, not mine. And so our growth in godliness, right, that we do grow in the process of sanctification, that is not what becomes the armor. It's the, that is that we grow in godliness to the glory of God. What defends us is Christ himself. It is the righteousness of our Lord. I mean, what a relief. Could you imagine if your success and the Christian life depended on you. We would fail. There's a reason why God must work to regenerate us so that we can know Christ. That he is the one who creates a new creation, to use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. Because if it relies on us, we know the results. But if we rely on Christ, it becomes the very defense of our lives against the attack of Satan through the breastplate of righteousness. The third is the shoes of the gospel. Notice in Ephesians 6.15, and as shoes for your feet, having put, it, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, the Greco-Roman sandal or boot or shoe for that Greco, it's a foot soldier, by the way. What's being described is not the Calvary Mount. If you ever saw... Um, the, the, the movie Gladiator, in the very opening scene, uh, one of the coolest scenes in, I mean, okay, yeah, yeah, I got some nods, all right, at least from guys. I mean, just amazing. By the way, uh, in, in our previous house, I had a surround sound system, 5.1. It was upstairs in a room. We cranked that baby up, and Dion be trying to make dinner like this. You know, it was great, man. You'd have, you know, firebombs coming in. You know, you got a guy coming back on a horse without a head because he was the messenger. They always kill the messenger, right? Why? You got no one else to kill, so that's who you kill. So they send them back. You got arrows flying in, right? And there's, so you see these foot soldiers with shields, and they, and they cover themselves with another layer behind them covers. Not, not the, the uh, Russell Crowe character who jumps on his horse and goes riding behind, and he gets to be on a horse. That's not, this is describing the guys in the trenches. That's what we're describing. And, and those, they would wear these sandals, and they would be made of like a half inch to an inch worth of leather, and they would put these nails through them, to hold not only leather together, but they acted like cleats. And you could dig in with them. Now you could do more with them. They actually, I mean, in battle, if someone's on the ground, you now have cleats on your feet that are made of nails. 
mean, they, they, were, they were a very effective weapon, but they were a very effective grounding. Notice it uses the word readiness. That same word can be interpreted or translated as a foundation, right? This may help you. If you ever see a house built, right, they, they lay out the frames, they pour the foundation, and it quickens, and you know it's now ready. That's kind of the concept here. If, if I'm giving you a kind of a modern metaphor, I'm trying, what does it mean by readiness? It's that the foundation is firm and ready to be built upon. And so what, what he's saying here is we need to have though, that kind of foundation life. It is the foundation of what? The foundation given by the gospel of peace. And I point you back to Isaiah 52, 7, which we read earlier. What is the good news in Isaiah 52, 7? Your God reigns. You see, when we are grounded in the gospel, and we realize the foundation of that is that it is God who reigns. He's in control of all things. This is the immovable one. We are then grounded and rooted in God. And see, Do you see the metaphor that Paul is starting to develop? We're, three, we're halfway through, right? What has he shown to us? He's shown to us at the very core of who we are, the truth of God, fully embraced. What, what protects the vital organs, what gives us the protection is the righteousness of Christ. What allows us to stand firm and to push forward, because that's the idea, push back against, right, is the very foundation of the gospel that God reigns. And so you have a foundation to build upon, to fight from. Not your foundation, not the foundation of sifting sands, the foundation of bedrock that will not be moved with the coming floods, that will not be moved by our sin, that will not be moved by the attacks of Satan, that will not be moved by the ways of this world. The foundation of the gospel says God reigns. Trust in him. And then he moves to the fourth thing, which is the shield of faith. He says to take up the shield of faith. And, and this is the large shield that they would use. There's a couple of shields. They had a small one that they would use, that you could use. If you come out from behind that shield, you could use in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But this is a large shield that was used so that is, you'll notice, why do you have it with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one? Now, the way this shield would be made, usually it would be made of metal, bronze, iron, something along the copper, something along those lines. And then they would put... A, a leather animal skin covering on the outside of it to help hold it together in one piece. So one, it's, it's heavy. It's not a light shield. One of the reasons you have this is because those, when those arrows come, you don't want to penetrate it, right? You, you want them to hit and deflect, fall away. But what they would do in, in ancient warfare, and you actually see this in that opening scene again of, um, of the gladiator, they would actually take the arrows and they put some, some uh, cotton or uh, 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 fabric, I had to think of the word. On the end of the arrow, they would dip it in pitch, tar. You know, you can burn it, light it on fire, and they would shoot it at you. And the idea was maybe we can take out a, take out a series of guys fighting in battle because it'll fall down and find some areas in their armor that are weak. But the other idea was, will cause chaos. The ancient historian Livy actually tells that one of the things would happen is these arrows would come in and they would stick and be on fire and it would cause panic. Guys would throw their shields down because they're on fire, right? And then that opened them up to the next, the next round of arrows coming in. Or the charge that came with the first spears, right? Because the, the, the protection's gone. So what they would do and the Romans started taking it, they would go and soak that animal skin in water. Because it would help, and this is a picture, it would help as they hit, you couldn't burn them, right? You, everyone knows, when you collect firewood, do you collect the green stuff? No. 
It's got water in it. It takes forever, right? You want the dry stuff. You want, you want the stuff that's dried out and just lights like that. That was the idea behind this. And, and Paul uses that picture to say, look, the attacks of Satan's, Satan can come in like these fiery darts that will cause disorder and panic. And, and what he's saying is faith acts like a shield to this. But I want you to notice when we say faith, it's not just, just general belief. At the core of faith is trust. Right? Faith isn't just belief. Faith says, I put confidence in something. You ever been in a meeting where someone says, hey, I need to get this done, and someone looks over and they go, done. Well, it's not done yet, is it? Well, what are they saying? I guarantee you it will get done, right? And if it's somebody you trust, you're going, great. You just check it off your list, you walk away. If it's someone you don't trust, what do you do? You put it on your task list to check with them to see if they got off their task list. That's how it works, right? This is the picture of faith in God that says, done. God is the one who we have our faith in. You see, this is why when the psalmist and others will talk about who is our shield, God is. You see, it's not like my faith is so great that it will stop the fiery attacks of Satan. It's actually saying, I'm going to trust in the one who is, as we confess this morning, who is faithful. And so when we're talking about putting on the whole armor of God, what we are saying is we were protected by our faith, not because our faith is what saves us. Our faith is what appropriates, grabs hold of God himself. God is the one who saves. He is the one who protects. Your faith is not so great that Satan can't attack you in such a way if it was only your faith. If it was only you, he will overcome. But that's the, it's just one of the great miraculous things of the gospel. My faith in Christ, in the personal work of Christ, now acts as a shield because God stands on my behalf in the war and the battle. I don't stand alone. And so the picture that Paul's trying to paint for us is put your faith fully in God. Because that is the true shield, God himself. This is the armor of God in the battle. But it leads us into the next part, which is the helmet of salvation. Notice there in verse 17, it says, and take the helmet of salvation. It's actually, what's interesting, it's, it, the, the word could actually be translated, receive it. Right? So it, in the picture, you're thinking, well, I grab this helmet and I, I, I grab it and I put it on. But it actually carries the idea that it's been given to me. Right? It's more like take because it's handed to me, not because I have to go get it. It's a, it's a very interesting picture. In the, in the Roman armament, this would have been the, primarily it's, it's metal up top, it's a bronze helmet. And then they would have kind of leather straps that would be reinforced with metal. That's so it's pliable, and they could fasten it on under, and that's so the helmet wouldn't come off. But you are protecting your ability to see, to think. That there's a protection of what's going on, and we would understand kind of in the mind and how we think in our mind. Right? There's a reason in Romans 12, too, that we are to be, what, conformed, and how's that done? Or transformed, how's that done? By the renewing of our mind it has to be protected because the mind is the gateway to the heart if i can convince you that something is true even if it's not it will change what you desire and what you do and what's going on with this helmet is saying hey you've got to wear it to be protected from what's going to come to your attacks now what's interesting is is something that it tells us about this helmet of and what it is it is a helmet made of or it is the helmet of salvation that's what it is the helmet is our salvation 
Now, how does that work? Well, when we look at this, it has to do with how God works our salvation. We do not save ourselves. God saves us. That's how it works. If you flip over in your Bibles in Romans 8, 29, and 30, you'll see this because of how Paul uses what we translate as past tense verbs. Romans 8, 29, and 30. It reads, For those whom he foreknew, notice the past tense, and you're going to hear this, he also predestined, notice the past tense, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, past tense, he also called, past tense, those whom he called, he also justified, past tense, and those whom he justified, he also glorified, past tense. That's weird. Why are they all past tense? I mean, look around. Are you all glorified yet? No. Well, here's why. The aorist tense verb in Greek, we typically translate as past tense. Because trying to bring over the idea of something, remember I gave you the illustration, you go to a meeting and it says, and they go, it's done? That's what God has done here. He uses this idea, because the aorist tense, when you take the time component out, looks at it as like, it's complete. It's a whole, whole thing accomplished. And what, what Paul is trying to show us is that our salvation is done. You need not worry that you will lose it. You know why? The gospel says, who reigns? God does. And our Lord said, he holds it, not us. So when you look at this, he says, if he, what, foreknew you and predestined you, right? Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and how God works to call us and predestines us so that we are to be saved. He not only does that, but that it's a guarantee. If that's happened, you are going to be called, and if you are called, you will be justified. There's no opting out, which I know will, this, it, it will cause struggle in your mind. Like, hold a minute, I have free will. Don't I get to choose yes or no? Well, according to Scripture, ultimately, God guarantees if He has predestined you, you will be justified. So while we may experience it as if though we had utter free will and that we just absolutely have choice and we can do whatever we want, because that's the American way, isn't it? You can be anything you want to be. So I, I'm thinking at 49 years old, my, my MBA career is about to start. Why are you guys laughing? Well, okay, I'll get in shape, uh, you know, grow another six inches, get a jump shot. I don't know, I got a lot to go, but you know, because you know you can be what God designed you to be. That has tremendous implications in so many areas, but realize when our God says he is predestined, he will guarantee, he guarantees it, you will be justified. And, and that should be humbling to us not prideful because you know the question you should ask immediately after that why me why me i'm not desirable god i'm not the noblest of people it's not like god said i'm going to take the top 50 percent this was not a percentile exercise god for his own purposes chooses for his glory to show I will save even those who don't deserve it. And it guarantees to us, but it doesn't just stop at our justification, which is the declaration of righteousness. It goes farther. He guarantees that we will be glorified. That's what Paul is saying here. So when you're struggling that sin, you need to remember my salvation not only is happening, has happened in the past, it is guaranteed to be completed. It is done. The day will come. Sin will be no more. 
It is guaranteed, not just generally in your life. And so when Satan says, uh-uh, you're not worthy, you know what your answer is? You're right, but my God guarantees it anyway. And see, when we fight the battle that way, we don't fight fair, right? I'm not looking to fight fair. I'm looking to fight the way God has shown me, which is I will say to you're right, I'm not worthy, but I get to stand in the righteousness of Christ because God guaranteed it. It is the work of God that we stand in, not our own. And then the last thing is the sword of the Spirit. It says there, this is the idea, when you finish it here, this is the short sword. So you can have a long sword. You've probably seen the long, broad swords. They're really heavy. You have to pick up. This is the short sword that you'd have to pick up so you could thrust and be quick with it. Right? Yeah, I mean, this is the close quarter combat sword when things really got personal. You're in there and you're fighting. This is what the idea It's the same one that gets used in Hebrews 4.12, that the word of God is sharper than any what? To a sword. Right? It's an effective weapon that can divide down to bone and marrow. I mean, this, this gets to the very word of God. But here, here's the point. Notice how it describes it when it talks of this about the sword of the Spirit. It says, take the helm, I'm sorry, wrong, wrong verse, this, the wrong part of the verse. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That is, this is the sword that originates, comes from the Spirit. It is the Word of God. You see, the Spirit takes active participation in the life of us in the body of Christ. And what, what's being said here is you need to realize that, that what's going on is you've been given the Word of God as a way to fight against the enemy that attacks you. Now realize, sometimes it's overt, right? Sometimes it's, we're like, man, look at, Satan is directly attacking. And a lot of times when we think about satanic attacks, especially in our popular culture, many of you probably envision something like the, the, the movie Exorcist, The Exorcist or something like that. But, but let's just be honest. That's not the majority way that we see things occur. It's much, much more subversive. See, what Satan does is he stokes up and he uses our own weaknesses against us. He uses our own sin nature, the sinfulness at the core of who we are. And he, he just stokes that up a little bit, right? Some of you have siblings. You, you, well, some of you have spouses. You know it this way too. You know exactly, yeah, you're laughing. You know exactly, don't you? You know exactly, this is how you set them off, Right? Like, oh, watch this. Yeah. So one of our kids was like me. So any of you know, I have the spiritual gift of harassment and sarcasm. Now, if you go look in the Bible, it's not in there. But I, I just, that's my natural bent. And one of our children is very much like me. And he would get bored, and he would go and stoke up his, his, his siblings. And they would be like, why do you do this? And it's a very simple answer. I'm bored. Right? I got nothing better to do. And I know. Right? Okay. Satan's not bored. Satan is very, very wise, and he knows how to stoke us up in all the wrong ways. He knows how to take that little frustration and turn it into a raging fire of anger. He knows how to take the glancing look and turn it into the depths of lust. He knows how to take the seeming impossible and turn it into the likely demise, and you begin to believe it. And see, the response to this is that you have the Word of God. How, how did our Savior, by example, respond when Satan came to tempt him? In his own temptation, what does he respond with? He starts quoting the Old Testament to him. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. You, you see, what we have to realize is that what is going on when we talk about the whole armor of God is that we are, we are to be clothed entirely with God. That's what you have to go into battle with. This isn't, oh, I'm going to find my own ways to fight the battle. Paul is trying to paint a picture for us. Armor yourself 
with God, His way, and His word. Fight with that. Because if you don't, you're using the wrong weapons in your war. And the accuser will bring accusations. The deceiver will bring deception. The devourer will try to devour your life. And if God is not involved, if you do not know Christ, he will succeed. But if you know Christ, he will fail. So this is what I want us to remember this morning as we leave. Put on the whole armor of God. Embrace God, his work, and his word with all that you are. Father, I thank you. I thank you that Paul writes in such a way to give us such a vivid picture of what it looks like to put on Christ, to put on the whole armor of God. God, to be arrayed in battle as our Messiah was, to fight the spiritual battle, not with our weapons, not with the weapons of flesh and blood, but Father, with the weapon that is our God. God, we know it is not us that wins this battle. It is you. It is not us who won the war on the cross. It was our Savior. God, help us to be a people committed to truth that our God reigns. Help us to be a people with a breastplate of righteousness of the righteousness of Christ. To be a people grounded with our shoes in the gospel of peace. To be a people that looks and says we wear the helmet of salvation, to be a people that wields the sword that is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Father, help us. Because as we even sang this morning, it is not us, but it is Christ in us. So may the Spirit, the Helper, do His work in our lives that we might fight in this battle to the end and stand firm in the gospel. So as Paul writes in the beginning of Ephesians, it will bring praise to your glorious grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.